Welcome back to the Behind the Wealth Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel. I'm joined today by Elias Randall, and we're going to talk about elections again. We talked about this in our last uh, our last podcast and informational series we put out. Uh, but today we're going to hit on kind of what the three possible outcomes are. As always, Elias, our goal is not to make this political, but it's to kind of ease the fears and, and help people handle the emotional side of an election. Yeah, that's right. And what I like to say when talking about politics is uh, we're not making any political statements here, so don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> I, I always like that one. Uh, but today we're going to analyze what the three most likely outcomes are of this next election. Doesn't mean we're going to size up candidates or any of that stuff. Um, and as we've talked about in the past, honestly, the elections really have little bearing on what happens long term with the stock market but it gets people emotionally attached and they kind of get get very involved. And if you follow our process that we use here, that's really the process of creating a financial plan. Um, and you pointed this out to me not too long ago that there, there's no part of our financial plan that asks what party is the president or who's gonna win an election. So if right. we kind of keep that in mind to have a very solid financial plan, it's one of the ways we can kind of ease the fears of what's going to happen. Because remember, on election day, roughly half the people are gonna be happy and half the people are gonna feel like it's time to move out of the country or do something different, right? <laughs> right, right. At the end of the day, as time I to always move say, to Canada. you got it. And, and people won't, but that's what <clears> they say because they think it's the end of the world. And if you haven't listened to our previous recordings, we actually did one on the 10 truths of election, that would be good for someone to go back and listen to if you've never heard it. Yeah, it, it would. And I guess for me, the the main reason that show is so important is, so elections are important, right? We know that. Uh, and in the short term, um, it's going to cause emotions. But when you look at like how we did the 10 truths of elections and markets, there's really nothing meaningful that happens in the long term regarding uh, the election of an outcome or the outcome of an election. Right, right. No, I totally agree with that. So really, let's talk about what the three most likely outcomes are. And first is a democratic sweep of the president and Senate, which would you know, give them um, basically control of all, all parties, right? Like they'd yep. be in full control of what could happen. The second outcome would be a democratic presidential win with a split Congress. Right. Yes. Um, and that's likely. Uh, we don't know what will happen. Then ultimately, the, the last probable outcome is the Republican presidential victory and a split Congress. So let's just kind of dig into it. Let's go dig into the first one. Um, and that's uh, the Democratic sweep. If we take a look at the Democratic sweep and what are some of the things that we should expect if we get a Democratic sweep, Elias? Or what are the things we're kind of kind of looking at as potential opportunities out there? Yeah, so we'll actually, um, we will end up talking about like three really attractive sectors regardless of the outcome. Um, but with a democratic sweep, just some of the, the high level points would be we could probably expect to see higher taxes. Um, so higher corporate taxes, individual taxes, and higher capital gains taxes. Well, and, and I don't think that they've kept that a secret either. I mean, that's no. out there that they are planning on raising taxes, and we'll dig into it a little bit after, after this. But I think probably the biggest part of that tax bill from an investment standpoint that people need to pay attention to. And you don't need to make any changes now. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen, but if it does happen, when I look at this from a pure investment standpoint, I'm not as concerned about 
how they're going to change corporate taxes or individual tax brackets. But what is concerning in here is changing of capital gains. And they could potentially change the capital gains tax to be taxed at ordinary income. And for most people, that is a large increase in tax yes. and would potentially be, or potentially cause some maneuvering to your portfolio before the end of the year. Right, right. And I think the other thing we should mention, so with taxes, like I know there's some uh, media out there kind of causing some fear of a Biden tax plan, but we wouldn't be going to an unknown place with taxes. We'd actually just be going, people making over $400,000 a year, and simplest way to say it, are going back to the tax code we had before 2017. Yeah, the late Obama year tax code yes. is where they're arguably going back to, um, but they do want to raise the income tax on people earning over 400,000 and primarily that's through a payroll tax that that would actually help supplement Medicare, Social Security and all those different arenas. Um, the second thing we'd be looking at is potentially just more regulation, which I think, you know, if you follow politics, you've got one party that's looking for deregulation and one that's looking for more regulation. So, you know, industries that could be more regulated would be uh, technology, right? Mm -hmm. Potentially antitrust. Um, stuff out there could be healthcare. If they had all three branches, they'd actually be able to potentially push through regulation that they couldn't have before. And whether that'll go on long term or not, who knows, but they presented this green new deal. So if you think about all those things in that new deal, that could provide more regulation, energy, technology, healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think we should be expecting that. Right. So, you know, just a couple of key takeaways from what happens if we have a democratic controls all branches is more regulation, potentially higher taxes and higher taxes more on the individual and corporate side. Uh, right. Go, going forward. Um, and in all honestly, they're going to be pushing to, to put push through the agenda of the Green New Deal. Um, but outcome number two is a democratic presidency with a split Congress. Um, in, in our view and the research that we've done, you're probably looking at fewer changes to the actual tax code. Um, they'll probably try to make those changes, but without the full control, it's going to be much harder to, to make those changes. Um, they're still going to try to push for more regulation in the energy sector, financial, healthcare, and tech to a lesser extent. And when you start to think about just energy in general, like I have an opinion on energy and over time, energy seems to be becoming a less attractive space for people to invest. And it's really because of this pressure of environmental and social governance type investments, which is really when they mention the Green New Deal and they talk about this agenda, that, that really is those type of ESG type or sustainable investing. Um, and that puts pressure on energy and there's been pressure on energy for a long time. Um, do you have any thoughts on the ESG type investing space and how that might play out uh, with um, a democratic presidency. Yeah, so I, I guess an, another thing investors could think about is it wouldn't, so we're already, even right now, those like clean energy, sustainable energy, and those ESG type investments are already performing well. I think that there might be an acceleration of it with a Democrat president, but it just, instead of private dollars investing into those companies, there'd be a push for more public money, so more public investment into those companies. Um, so that's a sector where either way, I think we're looking at as attractive and um, you know an opportunity regardless of this outcome. 
Yeah, and I think also with the Democratic presidency, we can probably expect lower interest rates for longer. There, there's not going to be that nudge to start raising rates. We're probably going to be in this low interest rate environment forever, yeah. not forever, but for a very long time. Um, so outcome three would be the Republican presidency without a congressional majority. And that's really just status quo, right, Elias? I mean, yep. we're going down the same path. We're not going to look at any major changes to taxes, looking for less regulation, right? They, the, the Republican Party has been trying to push less regulation basically since uh, President Trump's been in there. Um, and once again, we're going to expect low interest rates. And all of these are probably just status quo for the market. You know, I would tell people in the near term to expect a fair amount of volatility, right? And, yeah. and it's really because of a lot of unknown things. Um, right. And I think like right now, at least following the financial news, financial media, there's a lot of talk of markets pricing in a Biden victory. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. Um, but for, you know, people who are really worried or just, I guess, just know to expect volatility, because if that's already happening and then Trump gets elected, which, like we said before, would make half of the people in the country happy, half of them very upset. But we could see even more volatility if something unexpected happens. And, you know, I'm not saying that is going to happen. I just know the narrative of the financial news right now is talking. Uh, markets are pricing in a Biden victory. Yeah. And volatility isn't a bad thing as long as you know how to handle that volatility and you're allocated where you need to be allocated in your financial plan. Right. Right. You know, if, if you need this money that, that you have invested in the next three, five or six months, you know, volatility should probably scare you. But for the vast majority of people that are probably listening to this, they're not day traders. They're investing for their financial future, which is 10, 20, 30 years down the road. Volatility may actually provide buying opportunities for people that are still in the accumulation phase, right? Yeah. If you've got a chunk of cash sitting there and you get some volatility, if you look at a long-term trend, that's that's opportunity, right? I mean, right. I, we always jokingly say when the market goes down, I'm 42, <sighs> so when the market goes down, that's a good thing for me personally, maybe not for my business and my clients, but me personally, Correct. that's a buying opportunity. And we, we have belief and we have faith that it's going to continue to go higher over the next 10, 15, and 20 years. Right, and I actually, I, I was laughing the other day and I don't remember who said it, but it just made me laugh because it made me think of my wife. So my wife, if something is on sale, she has to go buy it if she wants it, if it's on sale. But then like she doesn't even look at our investment statements because if we do have a negative statement, it bothers her. And I heard that I one of the guys I listened to, he said, it's the strangest thing because the stock market's the only store in America that when everything goes on sale, all the customers leave. <laughs> That's actually really good. I've never heard that, but it is. And you know what it is? It's because people are emotionally attached to their money and they see their money going down right. and not the consumption product. If you think about humans, we're consumers of products in today's society. Yes. And if you have less money, I'm guessing what the feeling your wife is, is, man, I have less that I can consume now. Probably. And, and that's just human nature, but that's a really good analogy that, that I've actually never heard. Right. So. And I, you know, in our investment portfolio, it's not a, it's not tangible. You know, you can't, you can't hold it. You can't take out, you know, do anything with it. It's just something you own. Right. Right. So let, let's talk about how we can kind of prepare regardless of who wins 
going forward, right? And, and we'll have a lot of these episodes of what the opportunity is for investors based upon the outcome of the election. We just don't know yet. Right. Um, so, so let's kind of take a look at, you know, based upon the research that we do, the economists that we follow, um, Let's take a look at what are some of the attractive sectors, and this is by no means a recommendation, but these are sectors that potentially could benefit regardless of who wins. And the first is the clean and sustainable energy sector. We hit on this earlier, but if you take a look at the past 10 years, you know, 10 years ago, you started to see this push of environmentally and socially sustainable type investing. So we're going to clean energy and um, companies that have board diversity, um, and just doing the responsible thing. And what we've seen over the last 10 years is a lot of those companies have actually outperformed just the broad market in general yeah. um, in their asset classes. And if you think about it, if you're investing in a company who's concerned about the well-being of their employees and their board and the environment, a lot of times they're just trying to do good. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of the places we can look. And, and the reason is, is if you have a democratic sweep, they're pushing that agenda. So it lends itself to this ESG type investing world. Right, right. And, you know, even if, you know, whether it's a democratic, any of the three outcomes, um, you know, we found some data. So just since 2010, so this is the share of electricity generated from renewable sources. So it's gone from 10% to 17%. Um, in, in uh, 2019. So there might be an acceleration of investment into this area with a democratic sweep, but I don't, I know for me, it just seems like, I think going against clean and sustainable energy is like kind of a fool's proposition at this point. There's enough people that want that and there's enough dollars being invested into it. Yeah, I, I agree that, you know, the, the ESG type areas where we're going to see see some growth long term probably um the second kind of attractive sector that individuals could look at and this isn't just because of the election but just what's happening with COVID is technology it's been one of the hottest sectors here to date um it's probably not going anywhere i think that people are adapting it at a, at a massive rate I, I just look at 12 months ago if i were to look back 12 months and you asked me how many meetings are we doing virtually? It would be a few, right? Right. Today, it's several every day we're doing in a virtual environment. And even if we, even when, I'm not going to say if, but when we get back to what we'll call the new normal, I still envision people engaging in this manner. For instance, you know, I, I had a I had someone I was talking to the other day and they're in their 70s, actually. They live about four hours away and I jokingly said, you know, I'd love to come see you, but I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to come see you. And uh, they said, well, you know, we could do one of those Zoom things. I just was kind of taken <laughs> back. I'm like, wait a minute. You're going to you know how to do Zoom. So we're going to have a virtual meeting with these people that if I asked them to do this 12 months ago, right. they would not have adopted the technology. But we've all been kind of forced into adopting this technology. Right. Yeah. I get a kick out of it because, you know, we've all been in our grandparents' house and like they don't even know how to turn on their TV. But now all these people, our grandparents' age, are using Zoom yeah. to do their meetings when they need to meet with people. Well, and you know what it is? It's as humans, we adapt to what we have to do right. to, to meet our needs. And they didn't have to do Zoom before. Not that it's hard. They just didn't have to do it. Correct. So why take 
you know, why learn how to turn on the computer and press the five buttons to get there? Cause it's just a new learning curve. I think of my father-in-law same way. Like he's doing this stuff now. I remember he used to call me to ask him to fix his computer. Well, <laughs> I'm not a computer guy. I'm not even that good at it, but he, he thought I was, um, so technology is going to continue to benefit. Um, and it actually, uh, could all, that could also benefit technology could actually benefit from that move in alternative or in the green energy that we talked about or clean energy as they automate that more technology will probably become a component of that clean energy space to just to increase efficiencies and all those different things. It seems like technology's more ingrained in our life than ever. And it's moving at a very rapid pace. Yeah. And, and just the pace, how rapidly technology advances, you know, cause some of the worries with the election are well regulation. And I would, I would just imagine that technology companies are probably going to be scrutinized and like, there's going to be pressure to regulate them more for forever, just because as innovation comes, people want rules and it has to be safe. Um, but I would, I mean, I would just think that you want to be part of innovation and, uh, you know, just to, I guess, highlight our point, the technology sector probably has a very good long-term outlook regardless of regulation. And there's just a lot of factors that go into that. Yeah. And so the third one is healthcare. And it sounds a little counterintuitive because, you know, if you get this democratic sweep, well, they're thinking healthcare is going to be under fire, but really today it's probably going to take some kind of a backdrop to the COVID response. I, yes. I think about the COVID response and when this all happened, all we heard about is we don't have enough PPE. We don't have enough ventilators. You know, we don't have enough of this stuff. So even if, and when there's this COVID vaccine created, I would expect that we're still going to be producing PPE and all of these other medical type devices and instruments that need to be produced in a higher than average, you know, rate, because we're going to try to get caught up number one, but number two, I'd sure hope we start to stockpile these things. So when this happens again, we, we're, we don't run into the same situation we did six months ago. Right. So, yes. Yeah, so in the short term, you know, COVID's going to be at the forefront of healthcare until we get that problem solved. And then there could be some changes in the long term. But overall, the research that we lean on and the economists we follow, the outlook is very positive for medical devices, life sciences, diagnostic companies, and then even diversifying into large cap pharmaceuticals. Um, And the other thing, you know, we just talked about technology. So I think advances in healthcare is another reason to be exposed to technology because as that industry needs innovation, you know, what, you know, whether it's just meeting with your doctor over um, Zoom or whatever they call it, you know, some sort of telemedicine program, um, you know, it's just another reason to be exposed to both of those sectors. Well, that's a good point because telemedicine has been around for a while, but it hasn't been rapidly adopted. Right. And, and I, I had a medical deal here like a few months ago and I did a telemedicine. It worked great. I'm like, well, why would I ever go back to the urgent care if I can do this right here? I got a a case of poison ivy. I'm like, well, I know what this is. You can look here. Why would I ever go back into the medical office, which arguably most of the people at urgent care are 
They're probably sick. sick. So you That's why they're with, there. Right, you go in with poison ivy, you walk out with the flu. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think back to, I think this is two or three years ago. Um, one of my best friends, he's a foot surgeon. Um, and, you know, we were going on a fishing trip, about a four-hour drive, and we always try to solve the world's problems. And we were talking about this exact thing, and he brought this thing, this idea up that at some point would we potentially have a machine that you tell them your symptoms – they run it through an algorithm that's comprised data from every healthcare professional out there. So arguably it has way more outcomes than your private care doctor. It diagnoses what you have, takes your blood pressure, does all your vitals, and then makes you a pill to make you better. Like, could it actually get to there? And I know it's far-fetched, but if you really right. think about it, when you go to your family doctor and they're 28 years old or 32 years old or 40, they're really pulling from the reading they've done, the research they've done in their own personal experience, where if you were compiling everything into this, would you potentially get the same diagnosis? I don't know. It's so right. that's like where technology steps and you start to wonder like, where is it actually going to go? And, and it is leaning more towards te- They're all relying, even medical, they're relying on technology more than ever. Right. Right. And so for us, you know, as, as planners, and I feel like this is kind of, when we make portfolio decisions, I think this is a part of our job that's a little bit harder to explain. And then especially when you add, well, now we have an election. So now people's emotions are heightened and there's just more fear being driven in the media um, and excitement. So when we make decisions, we're really making decisions based on, you know, we're like 12 to 18 month outlooks and even longer than that. So I think that's one of the harder things to understand about what we do is yes there's going to be short-term things that happen there's going to be price fluctuation in the market but when we're working with you and we're helping with you we're looking beyond that we're looking out a year we're looking out two years five years ten years when we're making these decisions and i think that leads into a good point and this is the question we get all the time but hey should i go to cash before the election and we're going to hit on that. But I think this lends to what we just talked about. We talked about some attractive sectors. That doesn't mean go invest all your money there. It just means right. when we manage money for people, we're not trying to time the market, right? We're not saying, well, you should be in the market or out because we don't believe you can do that. Because the easiest thing to do is get out of the market. The hardest thing to do is get back in because you know if the market goes down 15% and you sold, are you going to get back in? Probably not because you're going to think it's going to go further. If the market goes up 15% from where you sold went to cash, are you going to get back in? No way, because you missed out on 15. So you're kind of in a conundrum. So one thing we don't do is try to time the market, but that doesn't mean we don't look for opportunistic areas based upon the current environment to allocate some dollars. And typically it's not large portions of portfolios, right? I mean, we want to stick to our objective that we've created through a well-written financial plan to get us to the right portfolio. Yeah. And that's, you know, when we talk about attractive sectors, you know, does that mean we abandon the companies in the S&P 500 and only own these three sectors? No, absolutely not. Um, Because, you know, we we would expect for business investment in America to continue chugging away just like it always has. Yeah. And it goes back to we don't predict like we don't want to predict what's going to happen. We're not good predictors. Nobody is a good predictor. No. Um, so the only time people are a good predictor 
you, you're wrong a hundred times and then you're right and then you're right once and now all of a sudden you're like you're this great predictor exactly um but it does lead us into the next thing and i just hit on it we're getting asked a lot should i go to cash and you personally have put a lot of time and research into what happens if somebody goes to cash and misses out on the first hundred days of a new uh presidential um nominee so let, let why don't you just get into it talk a little bit about um what those results are i know you kind of ran two scenarios one if you invested from 1957 and one if you invested from 1980 so i'm going to turn it over to you um elias and tell us a little bit about what happens if you miss the first hundred days and why you shouldn't miss the first hundred days yeah so we actually we looked at this kind of two different ways uh we so i'll just talk about the first one we went back to 1957 and we picked that year because that's when the S&P 500 was established. So in just growth on $10,000 invested in 1957. And this is, this is missing the first 100 days of each presidency since then. Because, you know, we hear it all the time. I'm thinking about going to cash, just wait and see what happens. Yeah, we had so, a call yesterday. It's the exact thing she said. Yeah, that was cash. the exact question. So... If you look at since 1957, the last 60 years, in August of 2020, you would have, had you done nothing, you were always fully invested. And you invested 10000 Yep, started with 10000 You'd have $790,000 as of August 2020. Now, if you skip the first 100 days of every president since 1957, you'd have $426,000. So almost half, roughly half of what you should have. Um, and that's just from, I'm just scared. I'm just going to sit it out and wait and see what happens. Yeah. And you know, it, it comes down to, um, the do nothing philosophy typically wins, Yep. right? We're all, we all overthink this a little bit and, um, the media is accomplishing what they want to accomplish, trying to get you scared. And, uh, I think that that number right there, just really sums it up, but, but really, you know, 63 years, cause that's what that time frame is, is a long time. Right. Let's try to break it. The 1980s, the one I like better cause it's 30 years. So if you think about most people that are watching or listening, they probably still have a 30 year time horizon. And in, right. if you're 65, you may still have a 30 year time horizon. So don't think that, oh man, I'm retired. Or I'm getting close to retirement. I don't have 30 years. You may have 30 years. So let's take a look back to 1980 with that same scenario, Elias. Yeah, so same exact scenario, 10,000 invested into the S&P 500, 1980. Um, it's basically the same outcome. August 2020, you're gonna grow to 324,000. And that's being fully invested the entire time since 1980. And then if you skip the first 100 days of every administration, you'd have 169,000. So again, roughly half of what you should have. So it really comes down to the old saying, time in the market is more than important than timing the market. Yes. You know, we tell this to people all the time. We can't time the market. Like nobody can. It's not been done. If you can do it, great. I don't think you can. People think they can because we get a bull market and oh, I bought this and it went up. Well, okay, give yourself 10 years and see how well you time the market over and over and over. When everything's right. just going up, that's easy. It's hard when there's volatility to try to time the market. Yeah. Um, so I think the takeaway from that is let's not even try to get into the game of skipping the first 100 days. Um, you know, it's just, I get it, it's emotional, 
But when you look at your long term, it's just not a good financial outcome most of the time. So are we saying that in the short term, there won't be any price fluctuation in the market? No, we're not saying that. And actually, with all of the things going on right now, um, I would mentally prepare for volatility and just know going into this election and going into just maybe the next few months, um, just know that you're going to stick to the plan. The only time you lose money is when you sell investments. And if you're and the other thing for accumulators, if you're in the accumulation phase right now, if the market goes down five, ten percent, that's a great buying opportunity. So, you know, keep your 401k contributions. If you're doing ten percent, just keep it right there. Keep doing it. Um, if you're saving in the IRAs, keep it going. Um, but really, we found so just to, to highlight this and to get mentally prepared. There's kind of four things all going on at the same time right now that. Um, would lead us to just expect volatility short term in the market. And the first one, um, which has been the highlight of the year, just COVID-19 uh, resurgence, resurgence fear. So one thing I think that would have a big short term impact is if we had to do another lockdown or if all of a sudden there was news that we were not close to getting a vaccine. So any fears of COVID really coming back to the surface um, you know, that could that could cause volatility in the markets. Yeah. And you know what we're starting to see in um, several European countries, United Kingdom, they've recently announced some new restrictions as they're seeing cases spike. New York, the last week of September, spiked to their highest uh, rate since July. Um, so we're seeing some of this happen. Are we predicting a shutdown? Probably not. Right. But at the end of the day, just be cognizant that, like you mentioned, if any of this stuff doesn't go as planned, they're going to be broad bumps in the market and it's going to cause that volatility to spike. But the good news is if you're still invested in the market, it means in March and April, that volatility didn't scare you away and you're rewarded for not getting out of the market. You know, right. you hit in a key thing. Like you'd only lose if you actually sell. Um, yeah. So and I would say for, you know, for all of us being through what happened in March and April, um, we should, you know, we should be okay. We should be able to do it. Yeah. And, you know, part of the issue here is the media is concentrating so much on these resurgence and all this stuff happening. It's really drawing the attention away from the progress that's being made on vaccine, de develop, vaccine development and how they're actually handling the, the, the treatment of people with COVID. Right. Right. And I actually read the other day that there's, there's 150 vaccines going into like the third phase of development for a vaccine right now. But once again, if you tell people, hey, there's vaccines kind of coming down the way, well, that's good news. And good news typically doesn't help uh, the media with their ratings. Yeah, I agree. Um, that kind of goes back to building a media filter, which we've done a show on that. Uh, that's a super important show. If you don't have a media filter, figure out how to get one. But uh, the second thing is, you know, going over a fiscal cliff. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, you know, we're waiting on another stimulus package, unemployment benefits that had kind of a bump in benefit is running out. Um, in fact, this last night we're filming the show and, um, you know, we're, we're on the brink of coming up on this election. There's been some timelines set to pass this this fiscal cliff to get more stimulus. And we don't know if it's going to pass or not. Um, so that would be the next thing to, to to really provide a fair amount of volatilities if we don't get another stimulus package. And um, 
you know, we'll, we'll see the market be volatile during that, that right. period of time. And it, you know, if we don't get one or if, you know, even if we do, then there'll be questions of, well, how much is it going to be? What does that mean for the deficit? Um, you know, so e either way that it could cause volatility. Yeah. And unfortunately both sides have politicized that, right? I mean, right. one side's offering 1.8 trillion, one side wants more. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if American people need the help, just figure out how to get them the help and <laughs> move on that'd down be, the road. So yeah, that'd be the uh, simple solution. You know, that, that would be, you're right. That would be the simple solution, but that's not the political solution. Right. Um, then obviously the third reason for volatility is the election. Yep. You know, we're going to see it. You know, one of the things that we believe may cause volatility too is if we have a contested election, which as we get closer and the the amount of mail-in ballots that are going to be sent, it's going to take time to count these. I think they just passed, um, something went through the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania that'll allow them an extra three days yep. to get them in. So I, I think that people should be prepared that on November the 4th, there's a high probability, we won't actually know who the president is, but the good news is we actually have a show being produced upcoming that'll talk about contested elections and what to expect. Right, right. So if it does happen, we will have a show available for everyone to listen to about, um, you know, we're going to take a look at 2000 and what happened back then compared to now. What are the similarities? What are the differences? But um, remind people of what happened in 2000, because if we have someone who's 30 years old listen to the show, that don't know what happened in 2000. Right, right. So, which I was really young in 2000. You don't remember either. So, but I do remember the <laughs> hanging chads. I can remember being a little kid and I knew what a hanging chad was. Um, so that was the election between uh, George Bush and Al Gore. Went contested until I think like December 10th or December 13th. Um, and, you know, we'll just have information on how that impacted the markets. And, uh, you know, and there's some... We'll also have information on the difference between the economic environment we're in now as compared to then because short-term events, do they cause volatility? Yes. But there were differences in the economic environment back then that really had a lot more to do with the stock market than a contested presidential election. Yeah, it goes back to what we talk about a lot. Monetary policy probably has more to do Right. With the markets than who the president is. We covered that in a previous show. Right. Um, so there was, you know, there was some, there was quite a bit of volatility back in 2000, but we we're actually starting a recession too at that point. Well, I think the thing to remember is that, you know, the media today will make you feel like there's never been a contested election. I mean, when you watch the media, you feel like this is a new thing. It's going to be an unprecedented event when yeah. it happens. Well, if you turn on the nightly news, we have breaking news at this moment. Unprecedented. I mean, it's happened before. So right. I think our goal here is to let people know just because you hear this thing, contested election, that doesn't mean a bad thing. It just means they're going to try to get it right. Okay. Yeah. And the key word yeah. is try. Yep. That's true. Um, and so in the last one that probably there's going to be volatility, it's just the rising tensions with China. You know, everybody kind of thought that when we passed phase one of that trade deal, that tensions were just going to kind of ease. And they did for the time being, but COVID really spiked it. Yep. Again, there's a lot of finger pointing at, oh, you did this. And, you know, it, at the end of the day, we should expect volatility over China. We just got over the TikTok and WeChat um, sanctions that were put out, you know, and, and if you think about what both countries are trying to do, both the United States and China, the biggest commodity we have today is data. You know, I was watching um, 
the new show on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And it's all about how gathering data is the greatest commodity everybody has. And part of the reason the U.S. put the sanctions on China for TikTok and WeChat is because they wanted to limit the amount of data they were getting. And it's kind of a race to the data right. at this point. Yeah, right. So, you I mean, you have the world's two largest economies, even with everything else involved. Well, now they're kind of button heads over controlling data, which is now like, you know, that's the next big commodity in the world. Everyone's data. Right. And they talk about that in The Social Dilemma. I mean, they're literally talking about how they're able to manipulate the, what people do throughout the day. If they haven't been on their phone enough, oh, they'll wave at you or do something to get you back on your phone and get you back engaged. Right. So, so it's you, it's you, amazing. So like you just get a notif. So they have notifications that are just designed to yeah, get so, you back on your device. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. It's probably why I get that news alert like two o'clock in the morning, because a lot of times I'll wake up at two o'clock and they probably know I'm supposed to be awake reading something. I'm not. <laughs> so that's the scary part about it. Um, so let's just talk briefly how, you know, we talked about that likely outcomes, some of the sectors that are attractive and the volatility going forward. But, you know, our stance on all of this has always been to create a well-written financial plan. And once you do that, you can kind of take the human emotion out of this, right? Because we're right. testing the portfolios, we're testing your asset allocation. You're able to make sure you're in the right portfolio, regardless of what's happening at any point in time with an election or China or any of this stuff, all the noise that's out there. Yeah, and that's, in the short term, ignoring the noise is going to be big for investors. And people that can will probably be successful in the long term. And the other thing, so just with our planning process, so we use our clients, like goals, time horizon, the things they want to accomplish in their life, and you know the lifestyle they want. Those are the things that we use to help build their financial plan. And then the financial plan helps us make decisions based on asset allocation and how to get them into an optimal portfolio. Um, so, you know, in the short term, it's okay to have concerns. Like I, I would never tell anyone if they said to me, I'm really concerned about the election. I wouldn't say, well, you shouldn't be. It's okay to have concerns, but it's not okay to let those concerns drive your decision-making. Yeah, it's funny we always talk about financial plan, but I don't know, about a year ago, I started calling this thing a financial decision tree because I feel like people connotate financial plan with retirement. And, and what I want people to think is financial plans aren't just for people who are 60, they're for people who are 25. Yeah. Because how do you know if you're on the right track? Why wouldn't you want to know, hey, this is what I need to do and the steps I need to take to be financially successful. You know, we just did a plan for a couple who was trying to quantify whether they should buy a rental house, but they wanted right. to make sure they were going to be financially successful without the rental house. Right. So we were, these were, these clients are 30 years old, 30 years so old. So we're helping 30 year olds make a decision about buying real estate, but does that does it coincide with your overall financial right, plan? Right. And, you know, if you don't have a plan, go to our website, btwellshow.com. There's a button on there you can click that says get a plan um, and we'll help you create that financial plan. Uh, so I think this is a really good show. I, I think the major takeaways are, you know, don't get too emotional about this stuff. And our goal here is not to make people excited, but it's more to give you the tools to understand why you can kind of, you know, I listened to a 
fantasy football pod, podcast called Fade the Noise. That's what we're going to start calling this. How do we fade the noise? <laughs> um, so that's kind of my takeaways. I think it was a great show. Uh, if you have any need for a financial plan or want to get in touch with us, or if you have a question you'd like us to answer, go to btwellshow.com. Be more than happy to take care of that. Um, Elias, do you have any closing remarks for us today? Um, no, it's we, we covered everything, but thanks for, thanks for having me on the show again today. And um, I guess I'll just remind everyone to, uh, you know, don't, don't let your emotions drive your decisions. I think that's probably the fundamental idea of this. Yeah. Well, thanks again for listening. Uh, until next time. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.